That's correct. You heard it right. The podcast name is now called Crawling Around My Brain because while that is a Counting Crows lyric and we have been doing a lot of Counting Crows on this podcast, we will be expanding to other things and I wanted to change the name to kind of broaden the scope of things that we will discuss. I want to thank everyone again. The listenership for the first two episodes has been really surprisingly good and surprisingly high. So appreciate everyone's support and um, really looking forward to things to come here on this pod. But today we are not going to diverge from the path that we have set out on as we have a very special guest. We have author Jeff Harkness, who wrote the book on the Counting Crows, literally. The book is called Rain King, The Life and Music of Adam Duritz and Counting Crows. And let me just tell you, while I'll share my thoughts uh, further on the pod, it's a great read if you're a Counting Crows fan or if you're just a music or like culture of the 90s fan, cannot recommend it enough. So you can go to Amazon and you can find that book. Again, it's Rain King, The Life and Music of Adam Duritz and Counting Crows. I'm super excited to have Jeff on. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with Mr. Jeff Harkness. Love me and I'm black. Welcome to the program, Mr. Jeff Harkness. He's the author of the book Rain King, The Life and Music of Adam Duritz and the Counting Crows. Um, Jeff, really excited to have you on the podcast. Uh, We have had a few earlier podcasts talking about the Counting Crows, but when I read your book, I realized that we have to get the man on who literally wrote the book on the Counting Crows. So welcome to the program, Jeff. Hey, thank you so much. I'm I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And I could have introduced you as Dr. Jeff Harkness, as you do <laughs> hold a PhD, uh, as well as an MBA, and you have That's a very right. impressive uh, CV. But right. do you want to just share a little bit about um, your background with the audience? And uh, I know that you spent some time um, as a music journalist. And uh, so whatever you think might help folks understand uh, why you're really the authority on this subject. <laughs> okay, thanks. Well, you know, my background is someone who I, I kind of grew up immersed in music in some interesting ways. I had a little bit of a, an almost famous childhood. My mother got into concert promotion when I was, I don't know, 10 or 11 years old. So I spent, you know, my, my early teen years attending every single concert that I could see, going often backstage, um, or sitting on the side of the stage, I met a lot of different uh, famous people. I mean, Stevie Ray Vaughan and Joe Strummer and wow. uh, Annie Lennox and some just interesting uh, folks who were doing great things at the time. I also, when I was 13, got a job at this legendary record store in Kansas City called the Music Exchange, okay. a million pieces of vinyl in stock and every person working there and an expert on a different type of music. So it's a real education. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah, right. It was fun. I also played in bands too. And so I was playing in in bands around town when I was like 15. And when I was 17, I moved to Los Angeles and uh, spent four years living there and working in record stores and playing in bands and um, just sort of having the the time of my life. So 
Came back to Kansas City. I spent some time as a college radio DJ. And my first job upon graduation was as a music journalist, which was a dream job. The first interview I ever did was with Questlove from The Roots. And oh, wow. during the time I was a music journalist, I just interviewed an amazing group of folks. I mean, I, I can think of like Getty Lee and Lil Wayne and uh, Joan Baez and you know, one of the one of wow. the people I, I interviewed during that time was uh, Charlie Gillingham from the Counting Crows. So, I, yeah, I, I, I saw <laughs> that. Yeah, still had that interview, still had the cassette, old school, and dug that out and transcribed it and used some of that material in the book. Um, so, yeah, for sort of fast forwarding, I, I also have this uh, sort of fusing that my interest in music and music journalism with my academic stuff. I ended up going to Chicago, where I did a six-year study of the underground hip-hop music scene, and I wrote a book about the relationship between gangs and rap music in Chicago. That was my first book. And wow. uh, this ranking is actually my fourth book I've written. Um, uh, this is the fourth book I've written, but my other three books were scholarly. Uh, two of them are specifically very much about music, but scholarly uh, monographs with university presses. This was in some ways, kind of a return to the music journalism side of my writing. So I've had this, you know, life where I've done a lot of, um, you know, had a lot of experiences with music. And the, during the time I was a music journalist, I think I, I published about a thousand pieces. So wow. I certainly do, do have a, a background yeah. in, in music writing and music journalism. And what they say about, you know, writers is you should write the books that you want to read. And to me, it's just was incredible that there wasn't a biography of Counting Crows. This amazing band sold so many albums, still touring. You hear them everywhere. Right. Um, <clears throat> you know, Springsteen, Prince, the Rolling Stones, they all have a thousand books. Everybody's got a book. How could there not be a book about Counting Crows? I just literally for 20 something years, I've been waiting for this book, these are the books that I read. So finally, I decided <laughs> that I was going to write that book. And well, um, yeah, it, it's, it's amazing. I mean, as you can tell, just by your description, you've had this this life, you know, <clears throat> around music and yeah. meeting interesting people. And, you know, I want to read your other book about the underground hip hop scene and the relationship to gangs. And like, that's all very interesting stuff. And what's what's um, it's impressive, too, because. I feel like out of all of these opportunities and all these different, you know, choices that you had about where you were going to lean in, as you just said, you decided here's a band that hasn't had that story told. And the episode preceding this one on my podcast, my friend and I did a um, kind of a deep dive into their background, but I mean, it was just scratching the surface with the amount of information that you were able to compile in this book. So I guess, you kind of you express you explained why you chose the Counting Crows, but was there like any personal reason? Are you a big Counting Crows fan? Like, is there, you know, besides just the fact that there wasn't this book, what was your personal connection to the band? Huge fan from the beginning. I was working at at a bookstore when the I think it was November or December '93 issue of CMJ College Music Journal came out. And um, we, it always included a CD in it. There was a, like one of those magazines where they gave away a CD in every issue. Right. So the em employees would get the free ones at the end of the month. And I would always take that CD home because I was such a big music fan. And Mr. Jones was, I think, maybe the second song on that disc. 
And I just remember playing it and immediately, like many people who love that song, connecting with it. But I played it, you know, 20 times that night or something. I had no idea who the band was. This is prior to social media. So you couldn't just dial it up and find out. But it's like, wow, this is an amazing song. And then, of course, uh, I I got, you know, eventually got the album and fell in love with it like everyone else. So Kind of Crows, I've been a fan of theirs from the very beginning. I think in some ways there are two types of fans, broadly speaking. There are those who loved the first album and thought that the band never topped it. And then there are those who loved the first album and also think that the band grew and did very interesting things after that. And I'm, I'm in that second group of fans. Um, as much as I love August and everything after, I also followed and loved their other albums uh, for the most part. But I'm also, I think, a, a critical fan. If you read the book, it's not a, a fanboy take on the band at all. No. And, um, you know, I, I bring in critical voices from those who wrote about the band, those who are in the band. And also I introduced my own critiques of, you know, where I, I thought the band maybe could have done better. Yeah. Um, no, it's, it's, it's <laughs> actually have a couple quotes from your book that I was going to ask you about that, that are, <laughs> no. that are, um, you know, that kind of fill that whole spectrum that you're just talking about. And, you know, I know I've said it a couple times already here in the first few minutes, but for those people that are interested in the Counting Crows, you really just captured so many nuggets. I had started taking notes on the various, um, you know, sources that you were referencing. I mean, it's a really wide range. At some point you've got something called Pop Dose, you've got River City's Reader, you've got the Harvard University School Paper. I mean, it it goes deep. You've got, you know, things that I had read before that were maybe some larger publications and then some other ones I'd never even heard of before that have really, really good uh, insights to them. So it's really an impressive list. And plus, as you describe in the book, you take it um, kind of in eras, right? So all the research and all the things you're quoting and the documentation is coming from that time. So it's not someone looking backwards and saying, oh, here's what I thought. It's what was actually happening in the moment. And so I think it's really really incredible. But I wanted to ask you before we get into the specifics, um, what's the reaction been? Have you gotten reactions from the public or, you know, even maybe from the band? Have you gotten any feedback on the book? Uh, yes, the I mean the the feedback from Counting Crows fans has been extremely positive. They're all like me; they're waiting for this book forever. We've all been waiting for it. And <laughs> right. the thing is, I knew that everyone was waiting for this book, and I knew how serious the Counting Crows fans are about this band and every little detail. And you know, it was very important to me to try to you know, A, get all the details right, which is never totally possible with this type of story. But also, as you say, it was super important to me that even the most hardcore fan would learn something from this book and go, oh my God, I had no idea. Where did he get this? You know, I I went to the ends of the earth to find the deepest, uh, you know, things that I could find, things that no one would else find. So the reaction so far, you know, preliminary, it just came out from the fans has been very positive. But um, I was in Omaha for the opening night of the. Oh, nice. And um, I knew a while back. I mean, part of it was I had this sort of goal that I wanted to get this this book out. And then I thought, oh, the band's coming to Omaha. I could just drive up there and see the show. That would be fun. I've been done that drive before and I've seen them in Omaha before. So uh, 
I, when I looked, I was like, wow, wait a minute. They have these like, whatever VIP tickets you can get. And you can, I can actually maybe possibly like hand a copy of this book to Adam. Would that be possible? So uh, this was all done a while ago, but long story short, you know, now, now here comes the show. And uh, I, I went and talked to the, the, you know, sort of concierge who said, yeah, yeah. Um, I'll, I'll take a copy of this book to Adam right now and give it to him. So wow. I, I, you know, wrote, wrote an inscription to him and I gave it to uh, their folks who then took it to him. And they said, he's got the book and he knows that you're going to be at the soundtrack. Um, wow. So, um, so then we go to the soundtrack. There's maybe 10 of us there and the band's on stage and they're uh, warming up and talking amongst themselves. And, um, we, you know, we're all just sort of uh, watching and, um, I think maybe, you know, they, they played a song or something like that. And then um, Adam comes up to the microphone and he started, he says, um, insider information. And then he starts telling us um, his take on why uh, uh, Matt Malley and Ben Mize and uh, the, the other members of the group who have departed, why, in his opinion they were no longer in the group. Oh, uh, wow. So it was uh, like he read your book backstage briefly and then came on to speak about it? I mean... So so he starts sort of tell, telling us yeah. this, but I, I was like, he's talking about things that are in the book. Is he talking about the book? Right. And then I, I thought, you know, no, I, I, you know, whatever. So then somebody says to him, no, no, no. Oh, Emmer, says something to him and he says, no, 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 that's in chapter five. You got to read it to chapter six and see what he says. And I, and I said to my friend, he's talking about the book. You know? That's awesome. He's definitely talking about the book. Um, so I said, I said, well, I, we were talking about Matt. They were talking about Matt Malley and why the bass player left the band. And I said, well, was it something to do with the, the letter that was written in Rolling Stone? And so Adam comes over and starts talking to me and, and explaining you know, he was saying, well, you know, we didn't want to fight on the tour bus, but my friend starts to videotape and Adam's like, Dad, don't, don't film this, you know? So I'm not going to go into too much detail about exactly what he said, but basically, um, you know, the, the conversation was around those sort of things. And, um, he said, are there any other questions? And, but he did sort of go into, go into a a long thing. And I did, I had some other questions about, uh, Matt Malley. I asked if the yoga, and his yoga right. stuff had something to do with it. And to clarify, Adam said, no, that stuff was all really good for him. Um, as I wrote in the book, he was into that long before the group. And Adam said, you know, in his estimation that um, they had not taken advantage of him or, or steered him in the wrong direction, that I, all of that had been very positive. So, Wow. Um, that, that's amazing. I mean, that's a little cor- corrective or if you want to say Adam's sort of take on, on the yoga thing. Uh, but he did have some other things, his his sort of reasons, and I, I'll leave it to him to say those. But as to why Matt is not in the group Left today, the band. Yeah. Um, but you know, we had a little conversation about this, and then he said, "Are there any other questions?" And I said, "Well, are you going to do an interview for the revised second edition of the book?" Right. <laughs> Get him on the record. There you go. Yeah, like let's sit down and talk. Um, and wow. and you know, he was like, ah, you know, whatever. Um, but he then he turns to me and looks at me and he said, thank you for writing this book. Wow. And I'm I mean, like, I'm done. You know, I'm good. I'm right there, you know. Um, yeah. 
Wow, I feel like we buried the lead. We're 14 minutes in. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Incre- no, no, that's fine. You asked, but um, yeah, I, wow. I, knew, I knew I was coming today with this story that no one's heard because it's just happened. Um, wow. Anyway, that was extremely exciting. And then, should I, shall I continue? Uh, unbelievable story about you meeting Adam and handing him the book, having him... I've been to those... Um, those kind of uh, pre-show activities when you sign up and you can hear the band do their their warm-up check and all that kind of stuff. To have him be actually talking about that stuff is very unusual. And time I've seen him do it where he stands with his back to the audience during that part and seems very disinterested. So obviously, getting his hands on your book, having enough time to read through some of it, and then coming over and having a conversation with you—that's just inc- that's just incredible. I mean. Um, I guess, how do you feel about that? I, I, was it like validation for this work that you put in or I, I, what, what are your Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, very, very gratifying. And I, you know, it's in some ways this, it's hard because I didn't want to pull any punches with this book. I wanted it to be honest. And I don't just mean in terms of the critical stuff, but mm-hmm. just, it's an honest account of what's going on in his life. And that's not necessarily fun to be a subject of a book that has that sort of material in it. And I tried, you know, I was coming from a place of respect and I was really focused on the music and I hoped that he would see that and not just think that it was uh, a salacious sort of take on his life story. Cause that was not my intention. And I think he could see, uh, you know, hopefully that it's coming from a place of, you know, really respecting the music and centering the story around the music. Yeah, I think I so I, I had a bunch of different questions for you, but just based upon this conversation, I want to kind of go in a slightly different direction here. But for those that are um, haven't read the book yet, and again, this is just one of the many nuggets, is that so bassist Matt Malley at some point writes a um, what like a letter or an email to is it to Rolling Stone, correct? And yeah. he basically yeah. says that George W. Bush. Um, you know, actually did a good job and st- stood up for the values of our country and things like that, right? Took kind of a positive spin. And you can explain this in a little more detail. And so that you thought may have been one of the reasons why his political views maybe had diverged from the rest of the bands. Is that, that's like kind of the basics story, right? Yeah, so I uh, found in the you know darkest uh, uh, archives of the web, and I, I remember when this happened too because I was a fan and also a subscriber to Rolling Stone magazine. But it was the week of the 2004 election between John Kerry and George Bush, and Matt Malley printed this had this letter that got published in Rolling Stone magazine that week. John Kerry was on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine that week for the week of the election. Here comes in the letters section, this letter from the, and he says, I'm the bassist of the Counting Crows. And I think, you know, you've sort of, your magazine has done a disservice to George Bush and not sort of presented the whole picture here. And he did, you know, he's done a lot of good things. And I I think it says like he was a great president. I quoted it word for word in the book. And I I actually had to get, you know, track down. You can't find it online. I had to track down a copy of the, the magazine itself. And it would, you know, because they don't publish the letters necessarily online. I think the band wanted to bury this. But uh, I found that and published it. And I wondered because 
you know, not long after that was the Oscars where, where accidentally in love was nominated for an Oscar and he wasn't there, you know, he was out mm. of the band at that point. He's gone from the band. You know, this is November, 2004. He was gone by the end of the year. So wow. I, I said, my theory in the book was that that was kind of the last jar or something that that was it. They, they right. said using the band's name like that, going against what we wanted to do. So that was kind of my theory in the book. So, let me bring this story back to Omaha real quick. Sure, no problem. So um, I say, uh, Charlie Gillingham is on stage. And I say, Charlie, I've got some copies of the book. I want to give one to everyone in the band. So Charlie comes over and hops off the stage and comes down. And Charlie and I are now just face to face having a conversation. And um, I, I had copies of the book with me. I wanted to make sure everybody had one. And so I said, here, here's you know, whatever, six copies, because I gave one to Adam. Here's one for everybody else. He said, we've already got two backstage, so I only need five. <laughs> so this is when I knew Adam already had the book. He had the book. Incredible. He had, had the book and had, had read it. And this is why they were talking about it. They had a copy of it. So, wow. That's amazing. That's incredible. Yeah, so, uh, right. So Charlie says, I only need five. Um, but he takes them and then we talked for a long time. He said he loved the cover, which I've heard a lot of great things about the cover. I was so happy to hear that. He loved the cover. He thought it was beautiful. And um, Charlie said the same thing. What he said to me was, this is his term. Um, that was great reporting. So Charlie had really, really nice things to say about the book. He said he loved the cover, which was great to hear. I, I was really happy about that because I love the cover image too. And what he said to me about the Matt Malley letter was he said, that was really good reporting. You know, I, right. that was really kind of great reporting that you found that. Right, right. Kind of his take on it. So that made me feel like, yeah, this there was something to this. You know, it, it was, um, you know, maybe the the tipping point for Matt Malley because he was gone shortly after. Well, so Charlie and I, I, I'm sorry, Charlie and I talked for probably I don't know, five minutes or something like that. And unfortunately, there was one of those things where someone came to ask him something and the second his back was turned, the, you know, folks stepped in. Okay, okay, come on, come on. You know, right, right, right. Hold, hold us away. So. Right. Well, that's, I mean, so again, just coming back to the book, you know, as someone who's been a fan, and I've been a fan for 30 years, like the first show I saw was in, I think it was 96, but I was supposed to see him in 94. I've seen him over 50 times. I've met him multiple times at meet and greets. I've met him at, you know, after shows randomly at hotels. Uh, the first show I saw, he was hanging around on the side and then the band let us stay there and meet him. And I've had all these opportunities, but A, I always kind of get choked up about it. And two, if I was writing it, I would probably just do it from such a fan perspective. And that's what I love about the book is that to your point, um, you know, I, I can see, I was trying to see if I could see you through the writing, right? And so like maybe one thing that I saw, which I'm going to ask you about, but like for the most part, it's really just factual, actual quotes from these, the, all the band members. And like, I had not heard about the Rolling Stone. Uh, so it also made me question like, am I actually a huge fan? I hadn't heard about that. There's a couple other ones I'm going to throw at you and we can take it whatever direction you'd like. <laughs> yeah. I had not heard about the Eddie Vedder coca-cola disagreement had never had never heard about that um i'd never heard about this incredible note which i thought which ties into some other themes i want to ask you about but you have a story about how 
uh, the producer for covering the satellites thought it was very notable that at the uh, breakfast table when they were recording the album, the band was talking about trading stocks and things like that during breakfast. That was an incredible nugget. Um, I don't want to go through all of them because I, I couldn't anyway, but there are so many good ones, but those really surprised me. And then also um, the Madonna connection I had no idea about. So there were, I mean, there's a bunch of other things in there, but do any of those, were any of those really surprising to you when you were writing it? I had not heard any of them. Every single one of them, every <laughs> single one of them. And I, the same thing, I thought I was a huge fan. And every time I dug into the story, I kept finding these little gems and nuggets. And to me, that was what was so fun because I, I said, there, there's no way everybody knows all this stuff because I've been a fan. I've been following this band. I thought I had the story pretty much down the parameters of it. But I kept um, finding these little gems and even things like um, the, the thing about the private schools that he went to when he was a, a, you know, right. in high, high school. Yeah. He went to this private school in Connecticut for a year. Right. Um, you know, he went to the reunion. He talked about it on stage. He, there's a whole you know, sort of story there that I, you know, all these just pieces of his life that I didn't know. So yeah. I, I didn't I didn't really know the you know, the sort of differences between Jennifer Aniston and Courtney Cox, the very sort of different experiences that he had with uh, those two, right. those two women. And, um, you know, in the, and even things like the Coca-Cola commercial, I, I knew parts of, I certainly knew about the commercial, but there was so much more to it that I, I maybe didn't understand. So yeah, I wanted it, I wanted it to be something that the fans would really um, just love and, and love those little nuggets and finding the little things all, but also at the same time, I didn't want it to be so totally obsessive and overboard that it was impenetrable. Um, there, there's like, for example, a lot of stuff about the types of microphones that were used on the on the August and, this, and recovering the satellites. There's a lot of details about the types of microphones, the specifics mm. of. And I thought um, most people just don't care that much, you know, about knowing right. that it was a such and such and such. Um, right. I know that the the super fans and the audio files do. I find those details kind of interesting, but yeah. to me, I, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't alienating people who didn't, you know, weren't super fans. I guess. Well, you do mention, which I also thought was interesting about, like how much money. I don't know if you quantify it necessarily, but you basically they spent a ton of money setting up these houses to be recording studios to get the right sounds, and you also detail across all of their albums essentially like how place and producer and also contributes to what the output is so i think those things are all very fascinating and i even in the intro i agree with you. i think the book is is for super fans of course yes but also just people who are like maybe music fans or 90s like late 90s 2000s fans like you can you can get into this even if you're not like the most diehard counting crows fan but there's something that there's kind of a through line um and i want to ask you about it because it's a take that maybe because I'm too deep into the Counting Crows that I have never really considered. I might have heard it back in the day, but you know there was a um, quote that you had, and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna read it. But at, at some point um, in your book, you say, "In the minds of critics, they were fat, coke shilling, Sun City playing corporate hacks who'd do anything for a buck." Even self-described devoted fans such as Pace Magazine's Kate Kiefer viewed the Triple Play tour as a new low. Her quote was, I tried to justify it. 
but I eventually faced the facts. Opening for a washed-up grunge pop band at the Blair County Ballpark in Altoona, Pennsylvania can't really be construed as a good thing. And I thought that that, it was a take where you kind of talk about this throughout, even the genesis of the band with Adam's uh, dreadlocks and the outfits, and then it kind of a through line to, um, you know, um, certain people's perspectives that this was like a manufactured band, which I'd never thought of because to me, it's just been such an organic relationship through all these years. But I guess like, how do you feel about that in general? I mean, is that a take that you think there's some truth to that? Or do you think that that's more just people being overly critical of a band that's been around for 30 years and has had a lot of different twists and turns? Like, where do you stand on that? Well, it's a, it's a great question. Um, uh, sorry, I want to just take, I want to kind of take a minute cause I want to make sure that I kind of make my, um, don't <laughs> say the wrong thing. No, no problem. I can um, pause. I can pause this too. I, I was just, no, I, I think it's a, a good question. Um, Again, I asked this question because you have this unique perspective and you brought forward some of these things that maybe as a as like a diehard fan, I just avoided the critique, right? Like a friend of mine's older brother used to like give us a hard time about it and I'd be like, you don't understand, you know, while this might not be our generation's like Beatles per se, to me they were. So I kind of avoided the negative takes. Although if you listened to my first podcast with my review, um, of the Troubadour show they had recently, I am critical about some of their song choices and creative choices, but I never questioned the integrity of the band. And I think what's interesting about your book is that I don't think that I started to, but it did make me aware of, you know, some of the machinations, what was happening behind the scenes uh, in the band and how, you know, for better or for worse, Adam has looked at this, like, this is a business, like we're going to do this. I have a lot of people that are, employed due to my songwriting abilities in our band and so that balance of like art artistic you know artist artist creative creative stuff but also business um was just interesting that's why i asked the question yeah that's a good question i so two things one is that this is a band and this came out a little bit more to me when i was writing and researching their story this is a band where there's always been a backlash. Like as soon as they were successful, there were critics who were, you know, like decrying all, all of these things, you know, uh, the way he, that he sang or the way that he looked often, they were very personal critiques directed towards Adam. So there was always this backlash at the same time. It didn't like come later. It came at the same time as the success, which right. was odd because he had to sort of negotiate being very famous and also, having people who really didn't like the band a lot, you know? Right. So I, I think that that um, was interesting. And also the, to me, um, the story itself is just in his story is interesting because he was 29 years old when this all happened. So this isn't the typical story of the 21 year old rock star, you know, um, and all of that right. at, at the same time. So there was this sort of business element. I think to me, Two things came out in the in the researching of the book. One, I didn't realize the degree to which behind the scenes figures did help, you know, to put together the band. I think Gary Gersh, I think T Bone Burnett, I think um, there were 
these key figures who got very involved right. in what that first album became, you know? Right. And then the band kind of took it from there. So I think, and Adam said this too in some interviews, that he always saw that first album as kind of the most manufactured because they had to really change what they were into being something else. Right. And by the second album, they've been on the road and they know who they are. They've, they've gelled as a band and it's a whole different experience recording it. So, um, you know, I, I think it's an interesting story. And part of what is interesting is that to me, and I thought this as a fan too, that the band, you know, made some maybe questionable decisions even early on, like associating so heavily with VH1 and MTV. And certainly the Coca-Cola commercial was hard to defend as a fan. And I remember, you know, one of my friends coming to me, hey, are you a big Counting Crows fan? Have you seen this? And I'm going, oh, man. Right. Hard. You know, it's hard, <laughs> really hard to kind of watch. Right. Um, <laughs> you I know, thought MTV and VH1 was a problem because that really was the center of pop culture. Now, it might not have been like on the bleeding edge of whatever was hip, but I mean, I actually thought that the storytellers um, piece, which you noted some critiques of that within the, uh, I always thought that was like untouchable. I always thought that everyone just had assumed that that was like the greatest thing ever done. So that was interesting for me to see that there are some people who thought, no, that wasn't that cool. Um, Because to me, I was like, that was an iconic double album that everybody seemed to have back in the day. Even non-Counting Crows fans seemed to have that album, you know. There was a sense that this band is too new to be putting out a live album. You know, right. that was sort of like, um, you know, you're you're overstepping your your boundary here. You know, you don't know your place. You have to wait until you're four albums in, or right. you know, whatever, right. whatever the rule is. Right, so, right. I, I think yeah. that that is interesting because the the um, so again, kind of talking about the band being this kind of machine or this kind of corporately put together group and me not having that impression. And I feel like in some ways, um, I, you know, people's backlash used to be that the band would make these new versions of the songs and be like, I want to go to a concert. I want to hear the same song. And I was like, I don't, I want to go to the concert and hear him off the top of his head, say something interesting, which is why I gave the band a hard time on the first episode. Cause I was like, how could you get me in the troubadour iconic place and then play me all of butter miracle no disrespect, but out of all of your songs, you know, I'm not sure I need all four of those in a, you know, 15 song set list. And then also, you know, with him giving speeches and these things, I always thought that was so unique. And I know other performers have done that over the years, but like for my generation, that was the first band that did that. And I thought that's taking a chance. That's taking a song and you're going to do something different and you might see him do an acoustic set on this day and maybe they're going to play some weird instrument on the next day. And like, I don't know. I thought that was all interesting. And to your point, what's funny about the history of the band is that to your quote, you just had about August and everything after that Adam in some ways looks at like August and everything after was actually, you know, they stripped away their instruments. They made him play in this house. They made him live together. They took these songs that might've been more like, progressive rock style and like made him more like folksy and so even though that one is the one where i think like oh that's the band's true sound really that was their sound and other people's creative influences coming together and so it's almost the opposite where now maybe as they've gone through their trajectory they sound more like themselves you know what they really wanted to sound like does that make sense like it's almost the reverse progression 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think that time on the road too for them and many bands is really important. You know, look at how great the second Black Crows album was, for example, because at that point they had been out on the road for uh, all this time at gelled, written songs, road tested songs. There was a lot of them on that second album. So, um, yeah, I, I think, um, you know, the, it changed a lot. You know, one of the things that to me was very interesting about, you know, their story was each album had something totally different going on. And I, cause I wondered, Oh, is desert life going to be as interesting as recovering the satellites? Right. But each, each one, there was a whole bunch of, you know, different, different things, you know, hard candy was the Coca-Cola stuff. And right. Um, you know, it, uh, like during desert life, like, you know, Geffen basically folds and becomes Interscope, but now, now they're label mates with Eminem and Limp Bizkit. Right, and-, right. <laughs> <laughs> and they want to release like an eight and a half minute single. Right. Yeah. Right. Which I thought was interesting. Um, (laughs) But you, you also, I wanted to ask you, this is a little bit more of a, I guess, a personal question, but you know, in, in terms of the, you just saw a show, which I will tell you that we almost did an emergency podcast when I saw the set list for the Omaha show. Cause I was like, that's the set list I would have loved to see at the Troubadour. It was like, I thought it was pretty, pretty awesome. But I guess one, um, you know, your thoughts maybe on that. And then two, it felt like to me when I was reading the book that you had a soft spot for um, Saturday nights and Sunday mornings as an album. But I guess how are your how have your feelings evolved on the on the band's progression through their through their different albums and their different periods? Like, are you as big of a fan of Butter Miracle as you are of August and everything after? You don't have to rank them all, but like, how have you felt yeah. about how they've progressed um, as they've gone through? Well, um, to, to your earlier point about the Omaha show, what was so great about that show was that um, because uh, Dan Vickery was not uh, on hand between the sound check and the performance, he, he was gone. So they had to throw out the set list that they had planned and scramble to come up with a new one. What can we all play? And suddenly Dave Bryson's playing lead solos. And I mean, oh, wow. it was very interesting because you're seeing something that was unrehearsed and like, we're just going to kind of uh, jump in here and, and play the songs and figure out who could do what. So Emmy was amazing and Dave Bryson really stepped up and um, they had to change things around and do things differently. And it was very exciting uh, to see them do that. Now, the, what was so disappointing was to see them then go play the same darn set list over and over and over again the last several nights in a row, you know, I mean, it's all, like the Twilight all the Zone. Yeah, right. it's like the, you know, and to me, it's like you telling me you can't go do walkaways, that that's not possible with Dan Vickery, right. you know, out right. there's so many songs like go play title track for August is everything after, you know, right. like, bust out the piano. Let's get really creative here. That's what the fans like us want to see. And and they won't give it to us. And, um, you know, for years I said they were, you know, I got turned off of them because I thought I used to say they were a really lazy band. Right. Uh, even though I love them, they were very lazy and, and um, you know, they've only put out six albums in 30 years. I mean, it's not, they are kind of lazy, right. but I realized in writing the book that part of the, it's not that they're lazy. They're just on the road all, all the, the time. time. Right. They're always on the road. Right. So I thought these guys are just sitting around, you know, in their massive New York apartments, but they're touring and, and keeping the, the, the whole thing afloat. So right. maybe that's to their credit. So, 
uh, you know, to me, I'm I'm like many of the the big fans. I always want the deep cuts, the interesting things. I want to see the band stretch creatively. But I'll also say this. Uh, you know, the super fans see them over and over again and are disappointed. I hadn't seen them in years. And so to me, I don't care if they play any, whatever, you know, go ahead and play round here and all that kind of stuff. Um, I'm going to enjoy it because I haven't seen it five times in the last two years. And, um, you know, I'm rolling my eyes at the set list. I, I know I am one of those fans, but right. if you don't go all the time, it's, it's, it takes away some of it, you know, it's better. Right. Um, <laughs> so as for the uh the band's trajectory i was somebody who hated saturday nights and sunday morning oh, interesting. When it came out um that was kind of the end of the road for me as a fan i i was like yeah i didn't i didn't i was not feeling that album and so when i came back to it for the book i was kind of intrigued because i thought this is going to be interesting to listen to this um again and really immerse myself in the album and the shows that were going around uh going on around that time and i i came to have a you know a, a different opinion of it I, I came to like it a lot more than i did originally for sure mm -hmm. found a lot of things that i liked about it um but i still uh, to me that's an album where there, there, it doesn't have, you know, those classic cuts, you know, one after the other. It's got a lot of kind of BB plus material to me. Right. Um, even even still, that would be my take. Although, hey, you know, a great band doing B plus material. Why not? Right. Uh, right. Right. And, and I do. I mean, I love, you know, Michelangelo and come around and you know, there's many songs on there. I think Insignificant is a very cool song. I, I like uh, that album a lot more than I ever did. But most of that came from writing this book. Before that, I, I hadn't spent very much time with it because I thought, mm, you know, this is, this is not that great. So uh, funny. maybe I have a, a new soft spot for yeah, it. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I forget. It was just some part of the book I was reading, and I was like, it seems like he might like this one better. And I'm with you. I think, look, I mean, one of the quotes you have in there is basically about, hey, look, from Adam was like, people are still coming to our shows. We're not the center of culture. But a lot of those bands, you know, who are the center of culture for five seconds don't even exist anymore. And it's like, yeah, hats off to this band, this guy, this this group of people, right? They've been doing it. And I've been going. I've spent thousands of dollars and tons of time and traveled around because they are so good live. And even when they play songs that I don't necessarily like, I think they're great, you know. Um, but another it's interesting because about the albums piece, I I almost have thought that in some ways what you wrote validated my impression of the band and what they could have been. I felt almost like when you have someone who's such a strong performer and artist like Adam and all these guys, like Charlie, all these guys are really good at what they do that you, you sometimes need someone who's like another strong voice, like a Gary Gersh or a T-Bone Burnett to say like, Hey, you know what? what you're doing is awesome, but here's something that like I do that's awesome. And when those two things come together, it's difficult. And maybe you go through that dip, but what comes out on the other side is even more incredible. And I feel like as they had gained more artistic control throughout their like discography, if you will, I almost feel like you get good songs, but I, I feel like they can be a little like sloppy. Do you know what I mean? Like that there, there was someone who was able to push back and say, Hey, you know, Scarecrow is a good song, but we could try it this way or whatever. It could be an amazing song. And I think Saturday nights and Sunday mornings is kind of where that starts because I think Insignificant actually is one of my favorite deep cuts. Like, I think it's an awesome song. I think that album's great. I saw them perform at like the Yahoo, 
a live show at the Sony studios, a couple hundred people, they played the whole album through and it was really good. But a lot of those songs are kind of forgotten. And then as each progressive album has come out from there, I felt like, you know, I wish someone could help rein it in a little bit, but then kind of like you, if I see it live or I start listening to it again, I find myself, I actually find myself, I can't believe I'm saying it's listening to like somewhere under, under Wonderland a lot. And I'm like, what am I listening? I don't even like this album. I don't think, but I keep listening to it. So I I, I do think maybe, uh, as, as I've mentioned previous on the podcast, a, my expectations are probably too high, but B, seeing everything compiled in the way that you compiled it made me realize like I'm even just more impressed that they've made it this long and continue to put out new music. Does that mean I want to see, you know, Bobby and the Rat Kings again in concert? No, (laughs) I don't want to see that song again in concert, but Uh, Hey, hats off to them uh, for continuing to churn out, turn out good material, you know, relevant material and, and bring people in. I, every show I go to, well, for the most part has been pretty well attended. So obviously yeah. they resonate with, uh, with folks. So, yeah. Do you have a favorite, uh, album or song? I'm, you know, you're a fan. Wow. So yeah. You can tell us. That's so funny. <laughs> you know, I was trying to think about this. I think that I would have said, um, this desert life probably as my yeah. favorite album, uh, I would say that uh, I was thinking live at the Heineken Music Hall actually as a live album. My friend said, you can't really say that's not an album, but like they released it. You can buy it in a record yeah. store. I yeah. think that's a pretty good compilation of, of some yeah. of my favorite stuff. So I like that. But what I like is similar to you is like, and you touched on stuff that I'd never heard of around like the deep cuts. So like Barely Out of Tuesday, I think is a great song. And I wish yeah. that we would hear that more. Um, right. baby, I'm a big star now. Like that's a good one, right? That's a, that's a really good one. And you, and you talk about a lot of those things in here. And I wish that there would be, um, I don't know. I, I don't know how they can weave them in August and everything after, right. I've heard that played live. Some of these songs where I just think that even Einstein on the beach, I'm not a huge fan, but people always ask me, they're like, you're the crows guy. Why don't they play that song? And I'm like, well, Adam kind of thinks it's this trivial pop song that he wrote and they put it on. He doesn't really think, and I'm like, yeah, but it's a good song. Like people would like to hear it. So some of that creative integrity, uh, or not wanting to play barely out of Tuesday, maybe because you wrote it with Courtney Cox or whatever the reason is, you know, don't take that out on me. Let me hear it live. It's a great song, you know? (laughs) So I I like that kind of stuff, but, um, yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, you know, it, again, I, I touched on, tried to touch on those deep cuts and outtakes and, you know, things that were recorded for, you know, this album or that album that people might not have heard. But there is, you can go so much further, you know, there's there's just, there's there all the, the live stuff and, and the way that things change live and the, the things that he talks about in concert too. I mean, you know, you could have a book like twice as long. But again, I, I was trying not to, overwhelm the 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 people who were kind of new to the story i was so impressed by his ability to i don't know if you call it write on command but decide okay i'm gonna write a you know song for shrek and i mean he nails it i'm gonna write a song that like we're a live band that everybody sings along with in concert you know and he writes hanging around right which is one of my very least favorite counting card songs <laughs> and they and of course they always they play, play it. It. and uh, you're, you're welcome <laughs> Yeah, right. And uh, 
Uh, but he writes a song that achieves that goal exactly, you know, and right. it's a hit too, and everyone loves it. So who am I to say, you know? Right. Uh, his his ability to sort of be strategic in his songwriting was impressive to me when I put the put it all together uh, and saw the different points in his career when he was doing that. And then, you know, also, I mean, back to the integrity thing. This was a, a group that prided themselves so early on on, you know, we won't lip sync. We're not going to be on top you know, top of the pops, right. Um, you know, we're, we're not going to, you know, play Mr. Jones first on Saturday night live. Right. And um, I think one of the reasons that they got such pushback for, you know, things like the Coke commercial or aligning so heavily with, with, uh, you know, MTV and VH1 was because that earlier stance of, you know, almost like a Pearl Jam like credibility, um, you know, resisting uh, the, the corporate forces and, um, you know, I think that that was part of the reason for, you know, that they got nailed. Yeah. Well, I, I could, I totally agree with you. And I could talk to you about this for hours. Um, I have one final thing that I wanted to ask you, cause I know that, uh, we are coming up on time here, but I wanted to just ask, cause you had a quote in there and I thought this was an interesting one. And I thought this would be a good way to sum up, um, you know, our discussion today, but so there's a quote in the book that you have, and it says that Adam was unconcerned about his legacy quote. Do we get the respect we deserve? I don't know what we effing deserve. I think there are always going to be bands that are critical darlings. I started off my career playing at the rock and roll hall of fame as an unknown band. I don't know that I would even show up if we got into it now. End quote. I guess my question for you is, do you believe that? Do you believe that Adam and specifically Adam, but Adam and the Counting Crows are not really concerned about their place in rock and roll history um, and and their place in music at this point in their career? Or, you know, alternatively, do you think that they actually really do care uh, and they and they're always striving to be kind of a relevant band? I think Adam rightfully feels that the band has not been given due credit. I mean, I, I think it's insane that they're not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and like the Go-Go's are, you know, like, uh, and that's, I love the Go-Go's. They should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but are you telling me that, that the County, County Crows are not in the Hall of Fame and the Go-Go's are, you know, I mean, put, put them up song for song, album for album, career for career, whatever. To me, that's just, that's wrong, you know? So I, I think that Adam feels like the band has, has not been, you know, given their, their respect or their critical due. Um, and I, I would agree with that. You know, I, I agree with it. So I think that his stance is, is probably, um, you know, to some degree, a justification of the fact that they, you know, haven't been given their rightful critical claim. Right. But I just think, you know, this is one of the great American bands to me. They're right alongside like, you know, whatever Tom Petty or REM or, you know, Bruce Springsteen or, you know, you can, you can sort of go on and on Pearl Jam, these great American bands, you know, with a deep catalog of great songs. It's amazing how many members of the original group are still intact, still playing together, still seem to get along. You know, I mean, yeah. they do deserve some credit. I mean, us fans, yes, we knocked them for the playlists and the song selections and, and not, you know, really not, um, 
the band's lack of respect for its own, its its own catalog, I think, is is where it comes from. Like, how can you not play these songs? Right. And you know, we'd all love them. Right. We're all super, super fans who are coming to see these shows. But you know, something that amazed me is I was in LaGuardia Airport a, a couple of months ago, and Elevator Boots is playing over the intercom system, and I'm like, "There's the new. It's not the old Counting Crows, not Mr. Jones. It's their new right new stuff. Song, you know, it's playing at the LaGuardia Airport." And then I'm with my kids in Branson, Missouri at some, you know, carnival ride and Mr. Jones is playing. And then I'm at something else the other day and, and their cover of Big Yellow Taxi's on right. the grocery store, I think it was. And I'm thinking everywhere you go, this band is still, their music is still playing. Their old stuff, their new stuff, their cover songs are playing. Everywhere I go, I hear this band and they're still out touring and still playing. So, you know, yeah, I can I can see why Adam feels that way, and I th- I think honestly he just at some point kind of g- gave up a little bit um, on the whole thing and just said, "Here's you know here's my what I'm willing to do and um, take it or leave and, it." And, and, <laughs> yeah, and I'll do the I'll I'll give it everything I can. I I do think though my take after writing the book is that he still means it you know mm-hmm. he's he he is is and was an artist you know he made very um artistic choices when he did things like this desert life you know right um he was trying to do something different and kind of reverse course but he did it in a in an artistic way he never repeated himself and said well he could have gotten t-bone burnett to do the second album but he said no we're not going to do that and to me i always respected the band so much for those choices um, and, and I, I guess I, I wanted to make sure that you saw those parts of the book too, you know, because they deserve a lot of credit for, um, you know, the artistic choices that they've made along the way and not just saying, okay, we're going to do a bunch of accidentally in love, um, Einstein on the beach type of songs. I totally agree. And people can't see, you can see me, but people won't be able to see me. I have a big smile on my face, especially as you go through someone with yourself who has the the acumen and the and the background knowledge and um, you know the understanding of music to place Counting Crows along these other icons of American music and as I said I think I always felt like you know I was just in this corner with like this small group of people that thought this band was great but really there's just there's just no denying their impact uh, on the American music scene especially for the the longevity uh, and the creative output to your point and I think I feel the same way and I think it's 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 um, when I'm giving him a hard time about stuff, it's more like, I just want to see up all night. You know, can you just do it for me? But, <laughs> but, but it, what does come across in your book uh, is that this is a band that, you know, has a very strong personality at the center of it, but they've got great musicianship around him and they made creative choices uh, intentionally to, to be true to themselves but also with the foresight of knowing that bands that just did the same thing over and over again, um, there's some mentions of like Hooting the Blowfish or some others, maybe won't last as long. And so they really challenge themselves to provide kind of new music and new takes and even new instruments and, and all this stuff. But the one consistent thing was a real quality craftsmanship of writing and playing and then also touring constantly. And so every year I line up to buy tickets because I keep saying this could be the last year. And fortunately for me, uh, it hasn't ever been that. And I assume they'll go until, you know, they just can't do it anymore. Um, and so I feel very fortunate with that. But I wanted to. What was, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I got to ask you, what was the best one? You've seen all these shows. You, you'd see more shows than anyone. What was the best show? Yeah. Wow. That's a great question. I think 
There's a couple that stand out to me. One, there was a slate. They did three in a row at the Wiltern. Um, this was basically right after this desert, or excuse me, this was like the hard candy tour. And so yeah. they really couldn't play a bad song at that point, in my opinion, like every album was awesome. So it was like, yeah. they couldn't make any wrong turns. And that was, we were in the front row and that's where we ran into Adam after the show. And he was like, I remember you guys were in the front row and we got to talk to him for a little bit. That was great. And then recently they played with Matchbox 20 and I'm also a Matchbox 20 fan. And they both played like 20 songs plus front row again, did the meet and greet, um, got to spend some time with him. And, and uh, that was, that was really cool. I'd say those are probably, the two best that I can remember, um, from recent times. So, uh, but I wanted to thank you again. I could, we could have you back and we could do this again for another hour, yeah, right. but like, seriously, it's not just the fact that you're a fan as, as we've pointed out. And as, as the band confirmed to you, it's like, it may have been a labor of love to start out with, but the way that you approached it, the professionalism, the, the research, the way you set the book up, it just, um, it's a great read, but it's also super informative and it's not just a, like a hot take from a fan or something. So I wanted to give you just again, uh, a thank you because I've been wanting this my whole life and I'm sure people listening to this will, um, feel the same way after they read it. So, uh, thank you very much for the book and I appreciate you coming on. Where can people get this book? I mentioned Amazon in the opener, but is, is there a place that they should be, um, directed to, to get the book? Yes. Just go to Amazon and get it right, right now. It's Amazon because you know, that's, that's where we all buy books, but, right. um, I, I, I wanted to sort of get, get everything, uh, finalized with it, make sure everything was correct. Um, you know, make sure if there was an error that I got it, got a typo that I got it fixed. So now I'm going to, um, widen the distribution a little bit so that, you know, you'll be able to get it other places, but right now you can get it on, you know, as an ebook or as a paperback on Amazon. And, um, yeah, I wanted to also just say thank you for your kind words on the book, because coming from a true fan like yourself, that means everything, you know, that's, and I, I did. I wrote it for all of us, all of us fans who love them so much. And also, like, they deserve to have a book like this. They deserve, if all these other bands have books out, you know, that talk about their albums and, you know, hear the great, you know, Warren Zane's book on the new Springsteen, the new Springsteen book. Why doesn't Counting Crows have a book? So um, I agree. Now they do. And, and uh, I, I do hope that the fans uh, will read it and love it. And I hope that someday Adam will do that second follow-up interview. I was just going to say, I'm sure the fans will love it. And I absolutely hope Adam takes uh, you up on the offer to write it because that would just be amazing. I think you've clearly demonstrated that you're a serious writer and uh, you know he could help maybe unlock even more kind of mysteries about the band. But um, thanks again, Jeff. Really nice meeting you. Uh, everyone, make sure to check out the book. Uh, it's a great read. And um, thanks again for your time, Jeff. Yeah, sir.